0: Okay, beloved, we are in Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8, so I encourage you to open your Bibles to that section of God's Word. If you don't have a Bible, hopefully there's a blue one located underneath the seats around you, you can use that one, that Bible, if you turn to page 944, that'll bring you uh, to this section of Romans where we are. We're looking at verse 28. And this is actually a two-part series, so we started to look at this passage last week. And last Sunday I ended I ended the sermon, the sermon that's focused on this specific text. I ended it by stating this quote. And the quote is on it on it this text believers of every age and place have stayed their minds. They've, they've remained fixed here. It has been likened to a pillow on which to rest our weary heads. And so this morning, what I'm hoping is by the end of this message, that quote will be even more meaningful to you. You'll really understand what that is all about and why Christians throughout the ages have gone to this passage during dark, dark days. Let's read the passage together. It's just one verse. Romans chapter 8, verse 28, the Apostle Paul, here the author of this text, he wrote, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That's the text. So inside of your bulletins, there's an outline. You can follow along. You'll find this note at the top. It says uh, basically that we're going to continue because we started last week, to ask and answer two questions concerning the amazing promise that is found in Romans 8.28, so that as Christians, we might have true confidence and hope in our suffering. True confidence and hope in our suffering. The first question that we're going to ask and answer, and we started to already, is who is the promise for? And if you missed it, the promise is simply this, that all things work together for good. That's the promise. Okay. So who is the promise for? And two what does the promise mean? What does it mean? And as I said, I partially answered both of those questions uh, last week, but there's still some things that we need to look at this morning, and in case you weren't here, or even if you were, I'm going to do a little quick review, if that's all right. We spent a good portion of our time simply going over the context, the context of verse 28. That means that we looked at the other verses that surround this verse, okay? The uh, Primarily the ones before it and the few that are after it. And I mainly did that in order to demonstrate to you that the the all things, do you see the all things there in that statement, all things work together for good? We looked at the context because I wanted you to see that that specific phrase, all things, not only includes, but is primarily about suffering. Or the sufferings of this present time, as Paul states it in verse 18. Sufferings that he says are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. And that is, that's another wonderful truth we should continually meditate on. So in answering the question, what does this promise mean, which is the second point in the outline, if you're taking notes, this would be a time to do it, you could begin by saying that it means that, listen, even bad, bad harmful or adverse things that we encounter in this life, even bad or harmful or adverse things that we encounter in this life, such as, let me give you some ideas of what I'm talking about, religious persecution. Paul makes a reference to that in verse 17, also again in verse 35 of Romans 8, or even things like health or financial difficulties. Again, this is a review. We talked about this last week. Or being treated unfairly or poorly, or relationship problems. Any relationship problems in here? A few, okay? Or you can simply say that, by the way, there's way more than a few, because, you know, I'm a pastor, so I know, you know, there are, there are relationship problems all over the place, okay? Or you could simply say it this way, the pain's hurt. Hurts and troubles that are associated with living in a broken or fallen world that is filled with broken or fallen people. Okay? The sufferings of this present time. Even those things, things that are, are clearly not good in and of themselves, all right? They're not good. Those things are not good in and of themselves, Persecution and all these financial troubles and hardships and and physical difficulties, even those things work together for good. That's the promise. That's the promise. That in part, at least, is what the promise means. And certainly the idea here is not that all things just magically turn out for good, that's, that's not what Paul is communicating, but rather it is the sovereign and perfectly wise God of the universe, the God of the Bible, the God we've been talking about all morning and singing about, who is directing the affairs of life in such a way that the outcome is beneficial. You with me so far? All right. As one pastor said, and again from last week, no circumstance, and by that he means even a bad circumstance. No circumstance fails to contribute to our good. That's a pretty significant statement. But is this, and it's a true statement, because it's in Romans 8, 28. But is this a universal promise for all people? I'm still reviewing now. Is this a universal promise for all people? The answer to that is no, according to the text. It is not a promise for all people. Rather, it is a promise specifically for Christians, which is, by the way, the answer to the first question in your outline, in case you're taking notes. As Paul specifies in verse 28, the promise is, you can see it there, right there in your Bibles, for those who love God, for those who love God, or those who, as a result of their salvation in Christ, have become a new creation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. And therefore, they are no longer hostile towards the God of the Bible, but instead, they love him. They love him because they have been given new hearts, hearts that now can love their creator and want to. And so, according to the apostle Paul, it is for them, those who love God, the Christian, that all things work together for good. With me so far? All right. By the way, and I said this last week, but I want to say it again. I am certain that there are those who do not follow Christ, who object or who would object to the idea that they are hostile towards God. There are, pe- there are plenty of people, maybe you're one of them sitting in here today, you don't follow Christ, Christ is not really part of your life, But you would not say that you are hostile to God. In fact, you might even insist that you love God. That you love God. But listen to me carefully. Hostility towards God can manifest itself in various ways. It can manifest itself in various ways. It may not be like this. I hate God! It may not look like that. It can look a little different than that. In fact... The one who is hostile towards God can still say, express these words, I love God, but the God that they love is not the God of the Bible. It's not the God of the Bible if they reject Christ. And what they've done is they have fashioned a God in their own mind, according to their own image, that they're comfortable with, that they like, and have rejected the God of the Bible who has revealed himself to us and who has made himself clearly known, most specifically in the person of Jesus Christ. You know, it's interesting. uh, You remember in John 8, do you remember the situation where the religious leaders, they didn't like Jesus and they were looking to destroy him, and and they got into this discussion, and, and they say to Jesus, God is our Father. God is our Father. Basically, they were going after Jesus and saying he really wasn't a true teacher, prophet, all of these things. God is our Father. Basically, they're saying, we have a relationship with God. Who do you think you are? And Jesus says to them, if God was your father. In other words, if you really had a relationship with the one true God, he says, Jesus says, then you would love me. Then you would love me. That's what the Word of God says. So when someone says to me they love God but they reject Christ, it would be, uh, it would be the right thing to do to show them that, no, they're actually hostile towards the God of the Bible and they need to receive Jesus Christ so they can be made right with God, given a new heart, and then they will truly love God. Okay? So I just want to restate that also I pointed out last week that while a Christian's love, a Christian's love for the one true God can grow cold at times and may need to be revived, it nevertheless remains. It remains for the Christian Loving God is the leaning of their lives. It's the bent of their lives. But their love for him, their love for him will never be perfect until they reach glory. Okay? It'll never be perfect. But it's always leaning towards God. And that's where we left off last week. You're, now, so you're ready. You're all caught up for the most part. But we still need to look at who is the promise for? Who is it for? There's still some stuff there that we've got to deal with. Because in verse 28, Paul provides us with another description of the Christian or the one for whom all things work together for good. The Christian is not only the one who loves God, but also the one, you can see it there in the text, who is what? Called according to his purpose. Called according to his purpose. Now, we need to look at that statement a little bit closer. When Paul says that they are called, they are called, it is important, it is important for us to really understand what he is talking about. And it'll come into play as we move through the book of Romans. It's foundational to the other things we're going to begin to understand about God and how he saves his people. This call has rightly been described by Bible teachers as, and you can write these things down if if you want or just listen. This call has been rightly described as the effectual call of God that saves. The effectual call of God that saves. Or you could say it this way, the divine call that results in the sinner being saved. Or, another way it has been said, God's effective summons, I like that term, summons by which people are brought into relationship with himself. Here are a few helpful quotes from others concerning this idea of called that we find here in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Concerning the called, they are those whose hearts and minds were so thoroughly influenced by the Holy Spirit that they became aware of their sinfulness, Begin to understand their need for Christ and embraced Him as their Lord and Savior. That's the called. That's the called. Here's another one. Those who are called describes Christians as the objects of God's effectual, that means it has a result, effectual summoning of them to become. The recipients of his grace, of his saving grace. That's the called. One more. Called means more than being invited to receive Christ. Certainly, that's what it means here. It means more than that. It means to be summoned to and given salvation. Okay? Now, maybe this is the first time you've even heard this stuff, so it's going to need to soak in a little bit, but we're going to keep looking at it. We're going to keep looking at it. And as you survey the New Testament epistles or letters, you will find that that is what it really means to be called by God. Let me show you a few examples. There are plenty, but we'll just do a few this morning. How about we'll start in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and I didn't write down the page numbers, but it's just a book over if you want to turn there, just the next book, 1 Corinthians, or these the, the scriptures will pop up on the screen. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4 through 9. I'm just going to read a little bit here because I want you to get the flow and the, and the idea of what's being communicated. Here again, it's the Apostle Paul. Here's what he says in verse 4. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace that was given you in Christ Jesus. Who do you think he's talking about? Unbelievers? No, he's talking about, he's talking about Christians. He's talking to Christians. He's talking to the Christians in Corinth. Okay, That in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's beautiful. See, 2,000 years ago, they're doing the same exact thing, waiting for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm just, this has nothing to do with the sermon. I just, I get it. I started reading this and I go, I love every piece of text. So here, verse eight, who will sustain you to the end? Oh, that's, that's oh, we could stop right there. We could, but we got to move on. Do you know, he, he will sustain you to the end guiltless, guiltless, beloved. You know, we sing about this, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, forgiven we will stand before God, because he will sustain us to the end. God, watch this, verse 9, God is faithful. By whom? Who's the whom? God. By whom? God. You were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. God calls the sinner into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. It is an effective call. Now watch, just a few verses later, watch. Watch. Now Paul is addressing something here, and we won't get into all that because I just don't have the time, so i got to stop commenting and focus on what I need to focus on. But verse 20, beginning in verse 20, let your eyes roll down. Watch. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Huh? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God Through wisdom, worldly wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach. He's talking about the gospel, beloved. It pleased him through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But in contrast to that, we preach Christ crucified. It was scandalous, beloved. It was scandalous. That message was scandalous. A crucified God? A crucified Messiah? Jews didn't want anything to do with it. The Greeks didn't want anything to do do with it. It didn't matter, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and folly. Foolishness to Gentiles. But, watch here. To those who are what? Called both Jews and Greeks, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ, the power of God and wisdom of God. Now listen, listen. To the lost world, the gospel appears to be foolish or silly. Get out of here with your Jesus stuff. I am done listening to that nonsense. You ever heard that? Maybe you haven't heard that, but it was expressed in their face. (laughs) But not to the called. Not to the called. Not to those who have been the objects of God's effectual summoning. To them, Paul says, the gospel is God's Great power and wisdom to save to them who have been called. They are the called of God. They are the blessed recipients of God's saving and irresistible grace. Hey, these are big things we're talking about right now. Big things. So, again, let's just let it soak a little bit. But let's keep looking. How about 2 Thessalonians chapter 2? That's a, more to your right. But it's okay. You don't have to pull it up. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. This is a slightly different translation, another good translation. But we should always, Paul says, give thanks to God for you, brethren beloved by the Lord. Who's he talking about? Christians in Thessalonica, the church there. We should always give thanks to God, to God for you. Why? Because, watch this, God has chosen you. Now we're getting deeper. God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. Watch this, verse 14. It was for this. For what? He chose them from the beginning for salvation, and we'll find out here, that they might gain the glory of Jesus Christ. So it was for this. He called you. He called you. He chose you. He called you. Through our gospel. That you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. All right, one more. Well, a few more. Jude 1. Jude Jude just has uh, one chapter. It's just the first verse in Jude. I'm just showing you. I'm just showing you as we move through the New Testament epistles Uh, How called is understood there, or calling, or the called. Now, typically, in New Testament epistles, the author identifies themselves, and then he addresses the recipients, those receiving the letter. So, just as is common, he does that here, Jude does that. Verse 1, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, he was actually the half-brother of Jesus, but that's, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, also brother, to those... Who are, what? Who is he writing to? Christians. And the called are what? Beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. So as I said, you will find in the New Testament epistles that called is frequently used simply as a designation for Christians. It designates Christians. And in Paul's writings, to be called by God is equivalent to having become a Christian it's equivalent. If you've been called by God, you're a Christian. It's an effective summons. You have become a Christian. Let me show you something else. This will make your head spin if if you've never looked at these things before. We're going to look at these uh, verses more next week, but let's just take a quick look at the two verses following verse 28, okay? The two verses following verse 28 in chapter 8 of Romans. So now flip back to Romans chapter 8. And there, beginning in verse 29, and we'll deal with these, there's a lot here, we're going to deal with them, but watch, Paul says this, for those whom he foreknew, God, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren, or brothers, watch, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And some of those whom he called. No, it doesn't say that, does it? And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Right. Now, notice carefully, my friends, what the word of God says. Notice carefully. All those who God has called, are also all those who God has justified. That's why I threw in some words that weren't there, trying to draw a contrast for you, not so that you're very clear about this. All those who God has called are also all those who God has justified. Why? Because every person in the history of the church who has been a recipient of God's effectual call has, as a result, embraced Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And so they were justified or acquitted and declared right with God or counted as righteous before God because of Christ. That's what the Bible teaches. That's what the Bible teaches. This calling or being called by God is what Jesus was talking about when he said this in the Gospel of John, chapter 6, I'll give you two verses. Verse 37, Paul or Jesus says there, all that the Father, these are the words of Christ, all that the Father gives me, all that he gives me, will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Watch this, a few verses later, verse 44, no one, that's an exhaustive, that's, a, that's no one, There's no exceptions to this. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. I will raise the one up who God has given me and who has drawn to me. I will raise that one up. That's the calling, beloved. That's the effective summonings of God. Now, there's certainly more I could say about this and I will as I said in the weeks and months to come as I continue to make our way through Romans. I would uh, refer you to if you don't have a good study Bible, we we have these study Bibles. They're John MacArthur is uh, authored them, not the Bible, but the study notes. The Holy Spirit authored the Bible, but the study notes and it's a it's just a it's a good reference resource, tool, study tool. I would encourage you even to just take the verses I just shared with you this morning and and see some of the notes that are there, some of the further explanation. But we're going to get more into this, and it's a very important uh, understanding of our salvation. So we'll work through it. Now, who is the promise for? Look back at the text again. Look back at the text again. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, we dealt with that last week, for those who love God, so that's who it's for, again, both of these ideas that we're looking at describe the Christian, all things work together for good for those who are called, we just looked at that, according to his purpose, according to his purpose. So we, we just talked a little bit, just a little bit about what it means to be called of God. All right. But Paul adds this phrase to the end, called according to his purpose. Whose purpose? It's God's. It's God's. The context, it's God's purpose, but what purpose? Well, Paul doesn't say in verse 28, does he? But Paul spells it out in the next verse. In verse 29, we find the purpose, which is the basis for the promise in verse 28, And we discover what the good really is that Paul says all things work together for. Look at the verse. Verse 29. This is why context is so important. If I took 28 and I ripped it out and I didn't have 29 or anything going before it, I could make 28 say all kinds of things it was never intended to say. Verse 29. For those whom he foreknew he also predestined, here's the purpose, to be, what is it, beloved? Conformed to the image of his Son. Who's the Son? Jesus Christ. Beloved, according to Scripture, God's ultimate purpose or plan in saving us, in calling us to himself, is that we would be conformed to the image of his Son. Of his son, that we would become like Jesus Christ. And in context, verse 29 is implying that the good to which Paul refers to in verse 28 is ultimately found in God's purpose for saving us. That is conformity to the likeness of of Christ that my brothers and sisters is the good that all things even our sufferings are working together for hello anybody that's the good conformity to the likeness of Christ that's the good One Bible commentator paraphrases verse 28 and 29 like this, and I found this to be helpful. I hope it'll be helpful for you. He paraphrases. He takes these verses and kind of puts it in his own kind of words and captures some of uh, the other words that are there. Watch. We know, Christians, we know that all things are working together for good for those of us who love God, and we know this is so. Because we who love God are also those who have been summoned by God to enter into a relationship with Him, a summons that is in accordance with God's purpose to mold us into the image of Christ. Was that helpful? There's another one. This is from a, another pastor. He says this concerning this section here. This truth is intensely practical, especially when you face trials. My friends, you facing any trials? Good for you if you're not, but there's always tomorrow. And he goes on to say, whether it's a minor irritation at work or a major life-changing catastrophe... You can trust God to use it in His sovereign purpose to conform you to the image of Christ. Listen, there is no comfort in the view that God is not sovereign over the terrible things that happen to us. There's no comfort in that. But there's a great comfort in knowing that the sovereign God is working all things together for good for His people. There's comfort in that. Another writer says this, the good of which Paul spoke, listen, is not necessarily what we think is best, but as the following verse implies, he's talking about verse 29, the good is conformity to the likeness of Christ. With this in mind, it is easier to see how our difficulties are part of God's total plan for changing us From what we are by nature, messed up sinners, to what he intends us to be, like Christ. Then the writer says, moral advance utilizes hardship more than not. What does that mean? Well, let me put it this way. This is how my former pastor, who preached through Romans as well, put it. Hardship advances godliness more than ease and comfort. Are there any Christians out there that could uh, affirm what I just said? Hardship. Hardship advances godliness more than ease and comfort. Now, we're not... Listen, what we don't ever want to do is downplay the hardship like, hey, listen, yeah, I know you're suffering. I mean, I know... I know you're in pain, I know you're crying, but, you know, yo, get over it, you know, because right here it says, God works all things together for good. I mean, you should be happy now. Don't ever do that, Christian. Don't ever do that. Paul is not saying that suffering isn't painful. That it doesn't hurt. It does hurt. And depending on what it is, it, it can go on for a long time. But in the midst of that pain, where do you find hope? And I think it's right here in the Word of God. Because even in that pain, I know this is not pointless. I know that God is and will take this and use it to achieve His great purpose for me. That I might be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And so, even though I'm hurting, in that, I can find hope. I can find hope. Let me suggest to you a few ways that our suffering can be used by God, because maybe you're asking. And even if you're not, I'm going to tell you um, how it can work for our ultimate good, which is to conform us to the image of our Lord and Savior. Here's just some, there are more than this. I'm sure you will walk out here and probably think of some other things I could have said. Fantastic. Share that with someone. Suffering can be used by God to make us more compassionate right? More compassionate, more merciful, more sympathetic, about more patient towards others who are suffering, right? It can make us more like Christ in this way. Someone who has a a chronic illness, and there's several of you that I know of, there's probably more who have chronic illnesses. It's hard to relate to someone who has a chronic illness. In other words, it's always there. The pain's always there. I mean, this is your lifestyle, pain, physical pain. But if you have that, then you relate very well with someone else who's going through that same misery. Huh? Do you know what I'm talking about? You can relate to them. You can, you'll be more compassionate to that person. You'll be merciful. And I, I could give you a host of other things. You lose a loved one, someone really close to you, you know that pain? God can use that. As terrible as that is, he can use that to conform you, that you might be more compassionate, more merciful to someone else who loses a close loved one. That's just one way. How about this? Suffering can be used by God to strengthen or further develop our relationship with him. As we find ourselves crying out to him, talking about in the midst of suffering, or leaning on him and having to really trust and rely upon him in ways that we hadn't when everything was going well. Do you know what I'm talking about? Any amens to that? Anybody can acknowledge what I'm saying right now? It's that, it's that phrase that you you, know, you get off in your Christian life, you start, and you're like, you're so fired up, man. I got Jesus. Yes, I am saved. I'm redeemed. And you start learning some of this other stuff, you're like, whoa, what are you talking about? What are you talking about that it's better to be going through the valleys than to be living on the peak? I want to live on the peak. That's where I want to stay is on the peak. Uh, Well, that's not going to happen, my friend, because you live in this fallen world with fallen people. You just give it time. You'll be in that valley. But don't you worry. It is even in that valley. In fact, indeed, it is in that valley that God does his mighty work of conforming you to the image of Jesus Christ. He works all things together for your good. How about this? Suffering can be used by God to remind us or wake us up to the fact that this is not our true home. Uh, That we must always keep our eyes fixed on heaven. My friends, my my brothers and sisters in Christ, do you ever find your heart or your mind Wandering away from the things to come and being very fixed on the things that are right here. Any of you? Any of you? Is it just me? Is it just me? Oh, there's a few of you. Good. I'm in good company. That's right. And God, so lovingly, so mercifully, will just give us a a reminder. You got your eyes fixed in the wrong place. This is not your home, my child. This could not be your home. This could not be as good as it gets for you. And he'll remind you that through suffering. Every time a person dies that I'm aware of, I know, I'm reminded of that. And then, as you're reminded, you reset your priorities, right? You begin to think differently, or may I say biblically, about what is truly important in this life. And finally, how about this one? I'm going to end with this one. Suffering can be used by God to bring our sin to the surface or expose the evil that is in us. Did I just say that? Yes, I did. I did just say that. I did just say that. Christians are, you know, Christians aren't perfect. I actually don't like that phrase, I would go further. Christians are messed up people redeemed by Christ and are being over time changed and molded into the image of their Savior. If there's any good, anything worthy of praise that you see in a Christian, don't say congratulations, my friend, but give the praise and glory to God because it's Him and only Him that did that good thing in their life. You see what I'm saying? So I was like, "Oh, we're not perfect." That's usually whenever someone says that, I, they're always getting ready to attack someone else. Well, you know, I'm not perfect, but what about Bob? I mean, oh my goodness! So I don't like that that idea. So suffering has a way of exposing the evil that is in us. Yes, I said evil, because that's what it is. So what do I mean? Well, listen, it is certainly easier, would you agree, to be kind and loving or Christian-like. See the quotes? When things are going well for us. Huh? Uh-huh. Right. And we may even start to think at those times: hey, I'm not really that bad. <laughs> I mean, I'm a good person. I'm pretty good. Yeah. But when things turn against us, huh? You, you put in your own narrative to what I'm saying. I'm giving you general ideas. You fill it up with the narrative because you all have individual stories in your lives. When things turn against us, when we encounter the sufferings of this present time, we don't always remain kind and loving. Rather, to others' shock, and hopefully, maybe to our own, we may manifest meanness or nastiness or impatience or be harsh with others or use ungodly or hurtful speech or maybe even become frustrated and angry with the God who saved us. Huh? Only me? Yes, okay. (laughs) Whoa. God just spoke right there to me. Right. That may happen, beloved, when our suffering exposes the wickedness that still remains in our heart. And you know what happens? You know how God can use that? He can use that to undermine our sinful pride. (sighs) Or our holier-than-thou attitude. And make us painfully aware of the sinful deeds of our body that we still need to put death or wage war against by the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells us. Romans chapter 8, verse 13. And so in that way, God can use suffering, my friends, to help us become more like Christ. Huh? There's a... Uh... Just find it real quick. There's this passage in 1 Thessalonians. Don't turn there because we've got to conclude here. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Paul says this, and and when you understand Romans 8 28, then this makes more sense. He says in chapter 5, last chapter of the book, Paul says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and then he says this, Give thanks in all circumstances. What? Well, you must have got that wrong. And then he goes on to say, "For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you." Now, beloved, Paul's not telling us to give thanks for all circumstances. Right? Some of these things that happen to us are downright evil. I don't give thanks for evil, but even in the midst of suffering under that evil. Death is evil, my friends. Even in the midst of suffering under that evil, in it, in all circumstances, I can give thanks. Why? Because I have an ironclad promise that my God who called me, out of darkness and into the light, who summons me to himself for the purpose of conforming to the image of his son, Jesus Christ, will use all things, even that evil thing, to transform me. He'll use it for good. Sometimes I don't, can't see clearly how he's doing it. i gonna be honest with you. I, can't always, I don't know I have to rely by faith on that promise. God, I can't see this right now. I don't see this. All I feel is pain. All I feel is suffering. I'm crushed under the weight of it. Help me trust. Somehow, some way, I know you, God, will orchestrate these events for my good. Beloved, the hope in all of this is that our suffering—it's not in vain. It's not pointless. But it is actually the means by where we increasingly become like our Savior. All things work together for good for the Christian. That is the promise, and I hope that promise will always be a pillow on which you rest your weary heads in the midst of the many trials and tribulations that we face. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, we are grateful. I say this repeatedly. We are grateful for your word. I don't know, I don't know where I would be without it, Father. Just so grateful for the, the truths, the, rich, the riches that are there for us to have. Father, help us to come back to this passage when we suffer. Help us to to lay hold of it. It is a promise for us who are believers. It is a promise for your children. It's theirs. Father, this this verse, some would twist it, it it doesn't mean that somehow you just flip things over and and, and everything just becomes good and wonderful in my life. And I live a life without problems or difficulties. That's not the Christian life, Father. That's not the Christian life. Your word declares that, and reality expresses that over and over again to us. But there is sufferings in this present time. But we know that, Father, you subjugate them. You force them. in your sovereign will to do us good. And, Father, this isn't just any type of good. This is the ultimate good that we might be conformed, transformed into the image of our Lord and Savior. That we might look more and more and more like him. Father, you are, you're awesome. You're all wise and your ability to do these things is just amazing to us. But Father, even so, I, I think, and I think about this every Sunday, I know there are those here who are not your children. They don't, they don't love you. They may say they do, but they don't love you because they haven't given their lives to Christ. They don't love Christ are not associated with Christ. They're not following Christ. If they loved you, Father, they would love your Son. If they're here today, and I'm certain there are some that are in that situation, Father, may you speak now into their heart and minds. May they hear the truth of their condition, that apart from Christ, they are damned. They have only one thing to look forward to. It is your holy wrath for their sin. They are guilty before you, Father. They are like we once were. Guilty and damned. But through Christ, trusting in Him and Him alone for our salvation, recognizing that He paid the cost on the cross. He paid it all. That those who believe might be freed from ever from your wrath, that they might become your beloved children, that they might be in line to inherit your estate, Father. Wow, incredible. Father, help help them to see all of those things. Help them to understand it clearly. And Father, might they, through your sovereign hand, turn to you even now, right now right where they sit in their heart and their mind cry out to you right now i am a sinner and i believe that i am condemned before you god and i deserve i deserve hell i deserve to be separated from you forever but i i understand that jesus christ your son is the savior of the world he's it He's the only one. He's the only one that can change the sinner's destiny. May they cry out to you, Father, in faith, turning to you, turning from all the foolishness that they believed before and turning to the truth that Christ alone saves, that there is no other name given under heaven by which men must be saved. It is the name of Jesus Christ. He alone went to the cross. He alone was able to take their sin, their guilt upon Himself in their place as their substitute, as the perfect sacrifice. He alone is able to give forgiveness because He paid the price on the cross. Father, might they call out to You now in their hearts and minds that they would be saved. For your glory, Father, we ask this, and for their great good, we ask this. In Jesus' name, amen.